a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. Well, I'm going to waste no time getting right into the wrong thing today. And I'm, I'm fairly sure I'm actually going to end up crosswise of uh, many of my listeners with what I'm going to begin with. Here in my home state of Utah, there has been, well, like in other states, a lot of, a lot of uh, disagreement and a lot of uh, back and forth over some of the different lockdown and health recommendations and um, just, you know, the COVID-19 responses. We have state authorities who, with no explicit authority given by the state constitution, nonetheless have assumed authority to shut down this business or that business or to mandate that you wear masks here or don't wear masks there. I mean, it's... It's been a very interesting back and forth, and I think this is pretty much true everywhere. One of the things that I have found particularly disturbing is how tone-deaf many of these uh, authorities are. Now, this is from the governor right on down. The governor, you know, is, is a perfect example. Gary Herbert has been one of those do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of leaders. And that there are, there are videos out there, there are photos of him, you know, campaigning for uh, for various politicians, sans mask, you know, not social distancing, and we're supposed to, you know, buy the explanations. Well, no, this was an exceptional circumstance, and you know, the, the things that we would get scolded for for doing as just average everyday citizens, somehow we're supposed to believe that. Uh, but if a politician does this, it's it's the right thing. But the most disturbing part of all has been the intense amount of authority and power vested in the hands of appointed and unelected health officials. Now, to their credit, the legislature tried to fix this. I think it was back in May or June. But unfortunately, some well-meaning but uh, overly activist, uh, conservative activists uh, shut down the process, claiming it was a, you know, a Nazi-enabling act power grab, which it wasn't. They were trying to put that, to, that power to make these kinds of emergency declarations back into the hands of those who are elected and therefore directly accountable to the voting public. But it didn't happen. And so you have people like Dr. Angela Dunn, who is the Utah State epidemiologist, continuing to to offer pronouncements and guidance to the governor, who then puts forth in the in the form of pronouncements, this is what's going to happen. Now, I'm not trying to to paint Dr. Dunn or even Governor Herbert as totally evil people filled with mendacity and just, you know, doing what they can to grind everybody under their feet. I think that uh, initially, I believe they probably started out in good faith, like most people, not knowing how or where this this COVID uh, virus was going to, to take us. But we've had many, many months to see and even though the, the focus has shifted from the number of deaths and hospitalizations to just simply how many positive cases are, are popping up, that lust to control, that lust to lock down continues unabated. And it's very disturbing because it, it's harming people. It's shutting down businesses. It's, it's destroying quality of life. And, and, and the most important part, it's creating precedent where... People are exercising authority that was not explicitly given to them 
to, uh, to control the lives of people to whom they're not even accountable. So here's where, here's where we're going to part ways with, with uh, some of my listeners. And I, I, I thought about this. I, you know, I understand this may be an unpopular way to look at things, but apparently uh, for, a couple of, uh, for a couple of times yesterday, there, there were uh, protesters who actually showed up outside the home of state epidemiologist Dr. Angela Dunn in Salt Lake City. And they, they were peaceful, and I don't mean peaceful in the sense that they only burned things that didn't belong to them. No, I mean, they just, they had some signs, they were protesting, they were, they were picketing. I don't know, uh, I, I honestly don't know if they were making any kind of, uh, uh, you know, noise or anything. I know the police were there immediately, and, and were saying essentially that uh, you, you can't, you know, can't protest here because this would be a, a major problem. Well... I don't disagree. I don't disagree with these, uh, these protesters showing up even though it was at her personal residence. Now, if they had behaved anything but peacefully, I absolutely would not support it. But I'm curious, how do you get the message across? How do you make yourself heard when, when a person can hide behind multiple layers of bureaucracy, you know, you know of course, the, the, the press, you know, is, is wagging its fingers. Oh, this is terrible. And the governor, I can't believe this is happening. Uh, you know, it's, it's all being reported as if, wow, is a, I, I mean, if they would show this same kind of outrage for, for the, say, like the Black Lives Matter protesters who go and disrupt people's lunches or dinners and take their beer and drink it or tip their table over or whatever, that would be one thing. But the outrage is very selective. And, and the question I have is, hey, does Dr. Angela Dunn have any responsibility for placing people's civil liberties under attack? And if the answer is yes, then I would maintain they absolutely have a right to protest peacefully. Now, is it the best idea? Is it the best way to do it? I don't know. That's debatable. But for those who are saying, well, they should all be arrested and they need to be, you know, taken to the woodshed for this. No. What needs to happen is uh, people in positions of authority need to recognize the limits of their power and they need to be held accountable. And if we don't do this, the the question is what's going to happen next? I'm not sure that I like to to see what's going to happen next because I think that uh, they'll just continue to exercise power that, uh, that will continue to oppress and grind people's faces into the ground. David S. D'Amato, contributing to thehill.com, talks about how civil liberties are under attack during COVID-19. And this this is in the broadest possible sense, but listen to the case he makes here. He says, philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote, Neither a man, nor a crowd, nor a nation can be trusted to act humanely or to think sanely under the influence of great fear. And David D'Amato says the United States is now in the grip of such a fear. It is prostrating before authoritarians in government who've waited for such a moment and now relish in ordering us indoors. In loudly applauding the authoritarian shutdown orders of American governments, many seem to be conflating at least a few separate sets of issues that relate to different areas of expertise. He says the first area of expertise is the epidemiology of COVID-19. It entails questions of the virus's contagiousness and deadliness. Now, there are questions on which there are very significant disagreements with important policy implications and, importantly, very poor data. 
The second question is whether the cost-benefit analyses favor the draconian measure of coercively shutting down all of civil society, one that is fundamentally unanswerable. This question is unanswerable, he says, because we can't know how much the forcible suppression of civil society will cost, and we won't know the benefits. Lastly, he says, even if we had perfect data about the characteristics of the disease and we were able to perfectly calculate the costs and benefits of the government-mandated shutdowns, we would be confronted, nonetheless, with the question of who gets to make such a decision. It's a social theory question, not a medical one. How does a comparatively tiny group of people at the top of government acquire the right to make this call for all other people? How could anyone or any other group attain to such a power? Now, this seems like an important philosophical question, but it's one that everyone on the side, on every side of the debate has apparently ignored. No one seems to care whether these few people, and they are just people, important-sounding titles notwithstanding, either have this power legitimately or can be trusted to wield it. He says, politics is plagued by a do-something bias, which drives elected officials and bureaucrats to act hastily, scrambling to enact some policy, even when faced with a complete lack of evidence about that policy's long-term effects. Economist Robert Higgs has presented the theory of a ratchet effect to explain the growth in power and scope of government during times of crisis. Higgs shows that crisis situations afford the state the opportunity to stretch its power into areas of life that were before beyond its reach. And the lesson from his work is clear. These layers of government power do not go away when the crisis subsides, but rather remain becoming the new normal. The extremely high level of uncertainty over just how many people have or have had the virus should make governments hesitant to implement the extreme measures they've implemented by fiat and citizens of a supposedly free country hesitant to accept them so readily. But of course, that's not what we've seen. We've seen credulous, hyper-fearful Americans close their eyes to the available evidence and the power of their ability to think clearly and critically. He says, we might have expected to see large numbers of Americans question such extreme measures. All right, we're going to come back to this in just a moment. I'm not saying that you should be out there protesting. I'm not saying it's the best or only way to be heard. But there has to be pushback on some level. And if there's going to be pushback, as long as it's peaceful, I say go for it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. Sharing with you an article by David S. D'Amato. This is published on thehill.com. And it talks about civil liberties under attack during COVID-19. One of the things he points out here is Georgetown philosopher Jason Brennan offers a succinct summary of the problem that we face. Quote, the biggest intellectual lesson we can learn from this is that when a crisis hits, the powers that be violate everything we know about data collection, giving us non-random and unrepresentative samples from which, as we all learned in a week or two of methods, you cannot draw good conclusions. 
One thing of which we can be absolutely certain, says David D'Amato, is that the actual number of coronavirus infections is significantly higher than the number of confirmed cases today. The Oxford Center for Evidence-Based Medicine points out that it's important to distinguish between one's dying from coronavirus and one's dying while he happens to have coronavirus. These are the kinds of distinctions that politicians, eager to exploit an apparent crisis, don't want ordinary people thinking about. And importantly, the kinds that ordinary people simply don't have time to think about. The case fatality rate, or CFR, represents the number of reported deaths relative to the number of reported cases of the disease. This value is biased by the fact that in the early stages of an outbreak, the most severe cases receive testing. As Hannah Ritchie and Max Roser observe, this is not the same as the risk of death for an infected person, even though, unfortunately, journalists often suggest that it is. Anyone trying to focus your attention on the CFR is either ignorant of the basics or intentionally trying to mislead you. Now, the infection fatality rate, or IFR, on the other hand, is the answer to the following question. If someone is infected with COVID-19, how likely is it that they will die? The lack of meaningful data on the total number of coronavirus cases simply means that our best and brightest, regardless of what politicians and cable news pundits tell you, have no way of calculating the IFR with anything remotely approximating accuracy. History offers that the lesson that the IFR is likely to be much, much lower than we think. The CEBM notes mortality in children seems to be near zero, unlike flu, which is also reassuring and will act to drive down the IFR significantly. Now, David S. D'Amato says none of this is to say that coronavirus is not dangerous or that people shouldn't voluntarily stay home, avoid large groups of people, or wear masks. He says be responsible. Take all of these steps to the extent it's possible for you. But the actions of governments to date are many orders of magnitude more dangerous than this virus, and it's not even a close call. Even if it were the case that going outside when sick somehow violates other people's rights... This argument leads us to some troubling questions. For example, what kinds of communicable diseases function to void one's right of free movement? How deadly does the disease have to be? How contagious? If one is so determined, he will be able to define harm to others broadly enough that any dangerous activity is outside of the individual's legitimate sphere of autonomy. Of course, this is all to say nothing of the startling class character of these shutdown orders which will have a devastating effect on millions of age of wage-earning Americans. Rather, Members of the educated professional class have jobs that enable them to work comfortably from home with very little disruption to their normal routines. Here's the thing to remember, and this is why I absolutely support the idea of people peacefully protesting at Dr. Angela Dunn's house. It's because what she has been advocating, what she has been telling state authorities to do is backed by violence. And the fact that they are not resorting to violence or threats of violence, although she is playing the victim about as as well as it can be played, doesn't change the fact that behind everything the state says or does, by definition, is violence, guns, arrests, imprisonments. David S. D'Amato says Americans seem to have been successfully conditioned to give up their civil liberties in times of crisis. 
to accept completely uncritically the word of politicians and bureaucrats, people who are no less self-interested than anyone else. But these times of crisis, he says, are when we must be vigilant, guarding our rights and liberties, watchful of overreach. Amen. Absolutely. By the way, I'll have a link to this in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. And by the way, if you want to give me some feedback on this, I would encourage you to. When you go to the show notes, you can leave me feedback. There's plenty of space for comments right there at uh, at the end of the show notes. You can leave your comments, and it's okay if you disagree with me. There is an extremely good chance that there's something here that I'm missing. So feel free. Agree or disagree, I would love to get your constructive feedback. Also, let's talk a little bit about how the poor and the underclass are being used as human shields when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to COVID nineteen. I thought this was was really interesting um, in the sense that they are the ones who who seem to to pay the highest price. And there's a great article here from intellectualtakeout.org. The author is Martin Cothran. Title is Elites Make Blue-Collar Workers into Human COVID Shields. He says, COVID-19 is a disease, and we usually treat diseases as health problems. But when a disease becomes a pandemic, it also becomes an economic problem. Not just because of the economic ramifications of trying to protect people from it, but because dealing with diseases on a mass scale requires economic thinking, mostly in the form of cost-benefit analysis. In his great statement of economic principles, economics in one lesson, author Henry Hazlitt points out the two fundamental economic fallacies. The first fallacy is to focus only on a policy's effects on one group of people without considering its effects on all groups of people. The second fallacy is to only focus on the direct short-term effects of a policy without considering its long-term effects. Well, these fallacies are on full display in current COVID policies. Lockdowns, for example, are a clear example of the second fallacy. An economic and societal lockdown can diminish the spread of a disease in the short term. But as we're seeing now, the short-term suppression of the disease does not necessarily lead to a long-term suppression of it. In fact, the second wave of the virus, if that is indeed the right term for the current rise in infections, has been declared worse than the first. What were the short-term benefits of lockdown policies in the spring? Holding off infections until the fall? Well, is there any evidence that the long-term number of cases with lockdown policies will be anything less than the total of all the short-term waves of the disease? Martin Cothran says the best argument for short-term lockdown policies is that we can delay the disease's spread until a vaccine arises. President Trump has declared a COVID vaccine is right around the corner. But his detractors... Proponents of the many lockdown policies disagree. A vaccine is not right around the corner, they say, and trying to rush the process will only lessen the chances of having an effective vaccine. And yet these same people make the argument that short-term lockdowns will prove beneficial because a vaccine is right around the corner. What about the different effects on different groups of people? General lockdown policies are designed to diminish infections in a total population but most people are not susceptible to the worst effects of the disease, yet we're treating them as if they were. As Harvard biostatistician Martin Koldorf pointed out in a recent Wall Street Journal interview, children and young adults face more medical and psychological risk from lockdowns than they do from COVID infection. 
Additionally, he points out, lockdown policies inflict minimal harm on the privileged in our society, since they tend to have jobs that can be performed from home. But blue-collar workers do not have this luxury, so the working class is building up the population immunity that will eventually protect all of us. In other words, we're using the poor and underclass as human shields. Martin Cothran says lockdowns may have made sense in the spring when we didn't know so much about the virus, but he also points out that we know better now. All right, we'll take a quick break. We've got a lot more to talk about. Walmart pulling guns and ammo from its store shelves. Gee, do they see trouble on the horizon? Oh, and by the way, you can stop worrying about uh, global warming. There's something better to worry about. We'll pick it up just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to thank my sponsors, including the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I can't tell you how grateful I have been to have them as a sponsor this past couple of months. And they are definitely the people I would send you to if you are looking for help in securing a mortgage for your home or you're going home shopping, want to refinance your existing mortgage. Also, Jeff Staples Real Estate. Jeff uh, is Jeff Staples is uh, he's the guy to go to if you are within the sound of my voice here in the state of Utah. He's with ERA Brokers Consolidated, has all kinds of resources available, but most importantly, it's a hot real estate market. Really hot. So if you're looking to sell your home for more or buy a new home for less, Jeff is the guy to go to. JeffStaplesRealtor.com is the website. And, of course, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. I'll have some more kind, for words, uh, more kind words for them coming up shortly. So I'm sure we're all hoping for a relatively drama-free election next Tuesday. I'm just waiting for the laughter to subside. I know everybody's like, really? Yeah, like that's going to happen. Well, Walmart appears to be taking no chances. I just thought this was interesting. Uh, This is from uh, Fox Business. Walmart pulls guns and ammo displays in U.S. stores, citing civil unrest. The retailer says the move is a safety precaution, but customers can still purchase firearms and ammunition. They've just moved them out of sight. I I presume this is to prevent looting, rather. Or theft. You can get the ammo and you can get the guns. You just have to ask for them. Oh, and they'll sell them to you in a plain brown wrapper so as to avoid, you know, any embarrassment, I guess. The article says Walmart Incorporated has removed all guns and ammunition from the sales floor of its U.S. stores this week, aiming to head off any potential theft of firearms if stores are broken into amid social unrest. The retail giant, which sells firearms in about half of its 4,700 U.S. stores says customers can still purchase guns and ammo upon request, even though they're no longer on display. A Walmart spokesman said, We've seen some isolated civil unrest, and as we've done on several occasions over the last few years, we've moved our firearms and ammunition off the sales floor as a precaution for the safety of our associates and customers. The company hasn't decided how long the items will stay out of view. Now, there have been days of violent protests and looting this week in Philadelphia after police fatally shot a man holding a knife in the city on Monday. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to tell you, a black man. 
In a letter to store managers on Wednesday, Walmart asked staff to pull guns from shelves due to the current unrest in isolated areas of the country and out of an abundance of caution. Walmart also removed firearms and ammunition from stores this summer in the wake of George Floyd's killing by police when several of Walmart's stores were damaged. The country's largest retailer is still a big seller of guns and ammunition, even though it's paired its offerings. Last year, it stopped selling ammunition that can be used in semi-automatic rifles and handguns following a shooting at a Walmart store in El Paso, Texas, that left 23 people dead. In 2018, the company raised the minimum age to purchase guns or ammunition to 21 following a deadly shooting at a high school in Parkland, Florida. In 2015, it stopped selling assault-style rifles and it stopped selling handguns except in Alaska over two decades ago. Walmart Chief Executive Doug McMillan said last year the store would continue to sell firearms and ammunition that appeal to hunters. And of course, demand for firearms has skyrocketed this year as measured by the Federal Bureau of Investigation Background Checks, a proxy for sales. The National Shooting Sports Foundation of Firearms Industry Trade Group estimated a record 12.1 million gun checks for January through July, up 72% from a year ago. I guess I really don't have a whole lot more to add to this other than uh, this is just this illustrates why the best time to get stocked up on the things you need is, you know, a long time ago. You really should uh, consider that when it comes to any other needs that you might have. All right, moving on. Here's an interesting thought. When's the last time you spent some time worrying about climate change, right? Global warming. I happen to love what my friend Ralph DeLugas and you can, uh, you can catch his show, Stranger Than Fiction, on the uh, Fed by Ravens Media Network. He is, uh, Ralph is, is one of my favorite outside-the-box thinkers because he thinks scientifically, and he has actually been the one saying for a long time, it's not global warming. He says, prepare for global cooling. And you really should listen to his show to, to get some of the lowdown on this. I thought of him when I saw this article. This is from uh, coldclimatechange.com. Hello, winter, my cold friend. And here's what the article says. The unsustainable, corrupt, and brittle man-made global warming story is unraveling. Climate maniacs predicted a snowless world years ago. However, we have reports this week that northern hemisphere snow mass is already 300 gigatons above the 1982 to 2012 average. I don't even think I've heard the term gigatons before, but uh, now I'm interested. It sounds, as a skier, that, uh, that sounds very good to me. The article points out this week, hundreds of all-time cold records fell across North America. No heat, only frigid, deepening, and dangerous cold. The United States, meaning the lower 48, just set its coldest temperature ever recorded this early in the season. Denver obliterated its all-time low-temperature record in weather books dating back 148 years. Oh, and it's snowing in Hawaii. Winter is coming in hard and strong, with the cold reaching all the way to Mexico. For the city of Chihuahua, the thermometer dropped to negative 1 Celsius. The ongoing cold is off the charts, with an air mass more typical of December or January than late October. The Washington Post admits Arctic blast brings minus 29 degree cold to Montana as cold and ice plastered the central U.S., toppling records far and wide. Readings plummeted to some 40 degrees Fahrenheit below average for this time of year. 
Now, I don't know who the author is, but the author says, back on September 3rd, I published What Happened to Summer. Uh, last year in October, I published Winter at the End of Summer, and Winter has arrived months early. This year, the author says, we had historic cold in Sweden in July and an abrupt end of summer in the mountains of northern Spain in August when a sudden cold snap left the Picos de Europa range buried under a blanket of white. The Alps and Pyrenees also received heavy summer snow, and the French, as well, were reporting all-time record August low temperatures. The Arctic is finally melting due to warm water that is perhaps sourced with the many millions of underwater volcanoes. The Gackle Ridge is a gigantic chain of underwater volcanoes snaking 1,100 miles beneath the Arctic Ocean from Greenland's northern tip to Siberia. The Gackle Ridge has, in the recent past, pulsed massive amounts of heat into the overlying ocean and thereby melted large portions of the ice that floats above the heated ocean column. Increased cosmic rays during grand solar minimums increase volcanic activity because these high-energy particles penetrate deep into the Earth. But to compensate, Antarctic sea ice has expanded to record levels, and even Greenland sees reversals in ice coverage with its biggest glacier growing. So in terms of climate politics, The Guardian is warning that in the coming election, the climate, the climate crisis rather looms as perhaps the largest of all issues to be decided. But at this point, it seems evident that climate change has more to do with politics than with truth. James Howard Kunstler, who does not love Trump, says the Democratic Party's agenda would add an extra layer of tyrannical and sadistic insanity to the process that will only bring more suffering to more people. And he says, I don't want that to happen. A vote for Democrats is a vote for climate insanity. Believing in warming in a cooling world is dangerous. Doing the wrong things can be catastrophic, leading to a suffering level few have the stomach to imagine. Their stance on climate shows everyone, moderate Democrats included, how hypnotized we can be by decades-long bombardments of propaganda. The sun is all-important in weather, but to Democrats it's not on the radar. Only CO2 is. Now, there are agricultural consequences that will be a part of this. And the author here points out that wild weather is wreaking havoc on crops around the world, sending their prices skyrocketing. And as prices soar on everything from sugar to cooking oil, millions of working-class families that already had scaled back on food purchases in the pandemic are being thrust deeper into financial distress. The Bloomberg Agriculture Spot Index, a gauge of nine crop prices, is up 28% since late April to its highest level in more than four years. Wheat earlier this week was the most expensive since 2014. Climate change is threatening violence against the human race and millions will experience it in their bellies. By the way, the UK had its worst wheat harvest in about 40 years, prompting fears of higher prices of flour and subsequently of bread and other flour-based products. Here's what's happening. The article says, we are entering a solar, a grand solar minimum. Crops are always the first to go. And our modern, delicately balanced, chemical-dependent, monocropping ways simply aren't prepared for a violent shift in the climate. Robert Felix has long been warning, I fear that we will be fighting in the streets for food long before we're covered by ice. I'll have this linked in the show notes. As alarming as it may sound, it's a very interesting article. Most importantly, though, it really kind of corresponds with what my friend Ralph DeLugas has been saying for many, many months.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Just a couple quick thoughts here before I steer away from the cold climate change article. I like this part. The climate narrative collapses. It is cooling, says the article. And to confirm that, just step outside. Now, below in the article, it lists the weather history from the last four months. If global warming were real, it would still be feeling like summer, being, as they say, the hottest it's ever been in modern history. Almost 300 million Americans are experiencing cold weather where it should be warm. And the same people who are fanatic about global warming have destroyed the world's economy for no reason. It's official. Lockdowns are not the way to go, says the World Health Organization. And blocking the sunlight to ward off the heat makes no sense at all in a cooling world. So it, here's the, it gives you the weather history. I'm not going to go through this. But the bottom line is, cold is more dangerous than heat. A new U.S. study finds that cold weather is responsible for the most temperature-related deaths in Illinois. From The Lancet, we read, Cold weather kills 20 times as many people as hot weather, according to an international study analyzing over 74 million deaths in 384 locations across 13 countries. I know, it's, it, it's, it's almost a little gloomy and doomy, but uh, look, here's, here's what you and I can do. Make sure you've got some good cold weather gear. Make sure you've got some food put aside. That's, that's how it starts. Those are things you can take care of. You can't control the weather. Neither can I. But we can definitely put aside warm footwear, hats, gloves, and coats. Maybe some more blankets if you need them. And you can uh, mitigate some of those circumstances. All right. Shifting gears here. The over-politicization of everything. It's kind of making life difficult. It's adding to already challenging circumstances. But here's the thing. It's also undermining our trust in institutions, and it's impoverishing us in many areas of our lives. Daniel Rothschild has a reminder that it doesn't have to be this way. And you can check this article out in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I'll just give you a couple of excerpts from what he has to say. We don't have to live like this. He says, woke capitalism is the worst capitalism. That was the note he received from a colleague late Thursday night, appended to a message sent from Expensify, the company that handles their employee expense reimbursements. He says, I only glanced briefly at the message. It was late. I naively assumed it was just the derigger corporate virtue signaling about voting that there's so much jetsam floating on the waves of society. But he says, I could not have been more wrong. The next morning I read the email. And he says, my jaw dropped. This email wasn't corporate pro-voting pablum. It was explicit. Quote, anything less than a vote for Biden is a vote against democracy. And he says, why would a payments company weigh in on a presidential election like this? To borrow from Michael Jordan, Republicans have travel reimbursements too. Here's how Expensify's letter framed it. Quote, Expensify depends on a functioning society and economy. Not many expense reports get filed during a civil war. As CEO of this business, it's my job to plot a course through any storm, and all evidence suggests that another four, or as Trump has hinted, eight or more years of Trump leadership will damage our democracy to such an extent I'm obligated on behalf of our shareholders to take any action I can 
to avoid it, end quote. Now, Mr. Rothschild says, as I read my other emails and checked social media, it became clear that Expensify had sent this missive to its entire user base worldwide, some 10 million people in all, according to one report. Even by the standards of 2020, this was exceptional. A major company had spammed its entire customer base with premonitions of a civil war if its preferred candidate didn't win the presidency. But he says it was more troubling than just an over-the-top email. Expensify is a financial services company. They have the banking details for our organization as well as for virtually all of our employees. They know the restaurants we frequent, what airlines we fly, which newspapers we subscribe to, the books we buy and where we buy them, the conferences we attend, and which hotels we stay in. They have our bank account numbers, credit card numbers, frequent flyer numbers, home addresses, and much more. Emailing us about politics was an abuse of that trust, I reasoned. And he says many of his colleagues told him they felt the same way. So he says, I decided to write to Expensify's CEO to make two points. First, that this email was an abuse of the trust necessary for a client-vendor relationship. And second, that this politicization of everything is deleterious to society. Now he says, I'll return to the story in a moment, but first let me elaborate on these points. America is rapidly becoming a low-trust society with profoundly disturbing implications. Successful, non-collectivist societies are predicated on a high level of trust, both among citizens and in public and private institutions. Low-trust societies have higher levels of crime and corruption. After all, if you believe nobody else is playing by the rules, why should you? Americans who report low levels of trust in others are much less likely to believe that people obey the law, treat others with respect, pay their taxes, and respect the rights of anyone unlike themselves. Low trust be- breeds repugnant behavior which further erodes trust in a vicious cycle. He says trust is critical to America's social and economic organization, and it stands in contradistinction to the clan and tribe organizations of other societies. As social analyst Aaron Wren writes, instead of being reliant upon family trust networks, America instead has general has high general trust overall. While there were always scammers and snake oil salesmen, America was a place where contracts were generally honored and could be enforced legally when not. Fair play was a high social value, people generally followed the rules, and you could rely on basically functional institutions of society. Virgil Storr and Ginny Choi meticulously review the literature on the relationship between trust and economic growth and find it strong, positive, and causal. Now, to be sure, Americans' trust in government has been low for decades. What's alarming now is the decline in trust in other institutions. According to data from the Pew Research Center, more than 60% of Americans believe these groups act unethically some or most of the time. Members of Congress, journalists, leaders of tech companies, clergy, police officers, and local elected officials. Further, more than 50% believing that members of Congress, local officials, tech company leaders, and journalists seldom, if ever, admit and take responsibility for mistakes. By the way, Gallup data similarly show a decline in confidence in institutions ranging from the judiciary to the media. The military and the small business sector are virtually alone in commanding consistent and high levels of trust across society. Many factors contribute to this lack of trust. As Martin Gurry says, social media acts as a body cam for elites and institutions, giving the public an unparalleled view of both the institutional rot and of human frailties and weaknesses. 
this willingness, even eagerness, of firms and institutions to take sides in pitched cultural and political battles further exacerbates this decline in trust. Now, he says this phenomenon is relatively new. For most of their histories, for instance, large institutions, especially businesses, sought to project images of prudence and probity. Trust was indispensable to their success, even their survival. Yeah, they may have engaged in political advocacy, but it was generally aimed at issues with a direct impact on their business. It certainly was never part of their brand. A missive warning of civil strife if an election went counter to the preference of, say, a bank president would have triggered a run on deposits and the board of directors effecting a swift leadership change, which he says leads to his second point his email addressed, the politicization of everything. Team Red and Team Blue have become efficiently sorted as if by an algorithm on lines of geography, class, education, and religion. Team members are increasingly unable to explain the views of the other team, and team membership is largely driven by hatred for the other team. To be a member of one team or the other isn't just to vote a certain way. It also dictates one's views on exercise, food, religious practice, travel, sports, child-rearing, music, movies, books, and so much more. And he says, this is a tragedy. Markets are positive some. Culture and arts are generative. Religious is formative. Religion, rather, is formative. Sports are entertaining. Politics are none of these things, except possibly entertaining, though that's a pathology and not a goal. He says, when we politicize all aspects of our society, we don't elevate our politics. Instead, we drag everything down to its level. So he sent his email, and of course that uh, prompted some responses by various people. About a quarter of a million people shared it on Twitter. I love this. He says, someone with a blue check mark stopped by to call me a Nazi collaborator. He says, from what I gather, this individual spends most of his days calling people Nazi collaborators on Twitter. He says, the bigger challenge that we face is rebuilding our trust in society and pushing back on the tide of the politicization of everything. Those are monumental challenges. And he says there are no simple fixes. It starts, this, it starts with making this statement clearly and repeatedly. We don't have to live like this. Now here's the kicker. That's a decision that starts at the individual level. Something else over which you have control. This is The Brian Hyde Show.